Indulge me your imagination for a minute. I want you to imagine a great leader, any leader, any field, any time, someone you look up to and respect, maybe someone who greatly influenced your personal journey. And I want you to think about the words you would use to describe them and just what makes them a great leader. I'll give you a second. Okay. Now, if I ask you to use two of those words and only two of those words to explain why they are a great leader, what would you say? For me, those two words are exceptional and inspiring. For me, great leaders are, first of all, great. They are exceptional. They do things we didn't see coming. They take us from the known safely into the unknown. Second, they do it in a way that inspires us to join, to reach, to go further, to change what needs changing, and to preserve the invaluable. Leonard Hoops is an inspiring and exceptional leader. Leonard has been the driving force behind the incredible and ongoing success of Visit Indy since 2011. He leads a team of industry professionals who work day in, day out, 24-365 to shepherd and grow Central Indiana's $5 billion plus annual conventions and tourism industry. Today, Hoops is going to share with us his proprietary business model that he's been perfecting since he first graduated from Santa Clara University with his MBA in 1992. He calls it the 345 model, and it is the backbone of how Leonard Hoops approaches sustainable, successful business development. The 345 model starts with the three key attributes of corporate culture essential for success and then identifies the four qualities of leadership needed to move and inspire people and finally looks at the five business objectives that become the guiding principles of the organization. I personally think it is an exceptional model. It's focused, it's effective, and it's easy to articulate. And as we work through recovery in a post-COVID-19 world, it is a valuable tool for all of us to look at as leaders as we take on the difficult task of reimagining, reorienting, and recreating our organizations. I'm excited to have Leonard Hoops here today to walk us through his business model, the 345 model, and to share how and why it's been incredibly successful for Visit Indy and how we can use it in our own destinations and enterprises. Good afternoon, Leonard Hoops. How are you? I'm doing well, David. How about yourself? I'm great. It's, it's really great to see you. Um, we've taken a bit of a left turn here. Usually we're talking about the forces in the industry and what's next, but I think it's time we started talking about tools. And I mean, we're very focused on creating and developing digital tools, but when you and I talked some time ago in, in, in North Carolina, you talked about the 345 business model. And then the other day we got to go in more depth on that. Can you share with us at a very high level the, the, the model of 345? Why don't we start with three? Yeah, and, and ultimately these are, are, are three pieces. One's got three to it, another four, another five. Um, that together, I think, and you noted it, uh, lead to sustain, sustainable success. Um, there are a lot of folks who are, I think, pretty good leaders who can have short-term success, um, and, and then that success doesn't hold. Um, and uh, Or they might have success when times are good, but are challenged when times are not good. And one of the things that I've really looked uh, to try to think through over the years is what puts you in a position to have success year after year, and what builds a foundation so whether times are good or bad, you, uh, you either thrive in the good or you bounce back from the bad and adapt to it more quickly. So 
uh, the three P's uh, of, of great culture are kind of the, the first thing. Um, and they are productive, positive, and progressive. Productive is kind of really the straightforward performance against the job requirements. So uh, this is what you got hired to do. You're in this job because your resume and experience say you can do it, and now do it. If you're a salesperson, you're hitting your numbers. If you're in some other job, customer service, you're satisfying that customer. Uh, if you're an accountant, you're a great accountant. Whatever the case is, you're, you're doing the job attribute. And I think far too often in organizations, what I found over the years is that performance reviews are overly focused, uh, completely focused on just that aspect of uh, an organization's culture. You know, these were your your personal performance objectives, and did you do them or did you not do them? But I think there's two other key P's in the three P's of a great culture that ultimately decide whether your whole organization is sustainable and successful. Um, the second P is positive. And it's not about, hey, did David walk into a room and he's always happy-go-lucky? And you know, sometimes those people are extra annoying. Uh, you know, they're not even necessarily the best kind of positive. Positive, I'm talking about is positive energy. And you can be positive energy without even having an exuberant personality. You can be a quiet person. The, the question is, when David Peacock walks in the room, do people feel the team is better off with him in that room? Do you feel positive about that? Hey, David's here. I want him on my team. I don't care if it's a scavenger hunt or a, uh, an ad hoc committee or whatever. People want David on the team. As opposed to that person we all know we've worked with, we may be working with right now, did they suck energy out of the room? Oh, David's here. Crap. Uh, you know, I mean, there, there's, there's, there are energy givers and energy takers, and that's what the positive is all about. And then it's progressive, which is, it's not, nothing to do with politics or anything like that. It's about adapting to change. It's about constantly seeking to improve. And in an organization like Visit Indy, where we've got more than 60 people, if all 60 people are constantly seeking to improve, they're not settled, uh, satisfied with the status quo, um, they're, they're looking to be better tomorrow than they were yesterday and better a year from now than they were last year, then you've got an organization that's going to take market share from other organizations. That's the three of a great culture. There, 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 there are three segments, the three, four, five plan, three culture attributes, three leadership attributes, and then the success objectives. Under the three culture attributes, when we talked the other day, they're not just the culture you're trying to build, but they actually become part of the recruiting process, don't they? Yeah, we actually organize our, our interviews, our, our job interviews around those three. Uh, we do our performance reviews. Uh, only uh, part of the performance review is based on the actual productivity. Um, and so you could have somebody who's a great salesperson, hits 100% of their sales goals, but if ultimately in their review they are not uh, being a team player that is bringing enough positive energy to committees and, and, and teamwork, uh, or there seem to be somebody who's not interested in improving the organization as a whole, they won't get their full potential uh, incentive or increase. Uh, and so people are very aware um, that it's more than just delivering on the job description. So in the, in the three Ps of culture, um, you build that inside the organization. You're building a culture based on those foundations, but you're also using it in the recruitment process. And similarly, when you talk about the four attributes of leadership, you're looking, you're, you're, I'm sure you're recruiting against that same subset. So talk to us about the four attributes of leadership. Yeah, so, so with the three Ps, you're really looking at this applying from uh, an entry level right out of school person to the senior leadership. With the four attributes of leadership, you're really saying at the very top of the organization, the people who are your vice president, your CEO, uh, et cetera, do they have an additional set of 
of attributes that, that help guide the organization. Uh, for me, those are vision, judgment, persuasiveness, and fit. And I'll walk through each of them. Vision for me is somebody who can very quickly get a lay of the land and say, I am at point A. At point A looks like this. And they can describe essentially what's happening. Vision is, is that point Z. They have something of what it could or should look like. And then they've got a roadmap to go from A to Z. And the, the really great leaders, I think, um, you know, can, can, can get that lay of the land. They can have an idea of what is a more optimal version of that and then lay out that path to get there. So that's vision. A judgment is the fact that no roadmap ever is perfect. You're never going to go from point A to point Z without some turns in the road. And we all make judgment calls every day. I mean, this morning you woke up and you're probably like, what am I going to have for lunch? That probably wasn't the most consequential uh, judgment call you had to make. But there's other judgment calls you've had to make as a leader over the years. Uh, how do I structure this organization? What do I say to the mayor or the governor or uh, the media person who's calling me about this issue? How do I deal with a, a board that's gone rogue or a board member that's not on, on, on the same uh, plane of thought as me on, on something? Um, there are judgment calls that make a difference along the way. And knowing that there are going to be many judgment calls of consequence between point A and point Z, you really need to have somebody who's not just a visionary, but somebody who knows how to uh, kind of uh, bend and, and swerve as needed to get to that point Z. And then persuasiveness is, is the attribute. My, that's my catch-all. Some people will say, oh, you need charisma. Or you need you know, somebody who's dynamic. And, and I think really the proper word is persuasiveness because you can have quiet leaders who are persuasive. You can have really smart, but not necessarily charismatic people who are persuasive. The key is, does somebody want to follow you, your lead? Does somebody want to say, hey, I'm going to follow what David's there. I'm 100% I'm, I'm behind Leonard on this one. Uh, what is it about you, uh, about your argument, about your skill set that made that person says, I'm going into battle with you? And then the last one is fit. And fit is really a tricky one because uh, what I don't want anybody to think this is, is that, you know, there's this kind of, you're looking for homogeny. Uh, I don't want, you know, five leaders who are all the same. That's not going to be a good organization, a good leadership organization. Fit to me is about the right ingredients in a recipe. And so um, you don't want too much. If you've got nothing but salt and pepper and the, the recipe calls for five other things, you got to find those other things. And so you don't necessarily want to overload on any one thing. You also don't necessarily want the proverbial bull in a china shop. There are people who are just not going to be fits for your type of organization, your type of culture. And they might be great fits for another one. And so I think fit is kind of the often overlooked attribute uh, from a leadership perspective. Is it the right ingredient? Is it, are you missing something? Do you need something strengthened? Uh, and and is, it, is it really culturally uh, the right organization for that person and vice versa? Okay, so let's recap the attributes of the organizational leader you're looking for. Vision, it's, it's situational awareness and an ability to see into the distance and plot a course. I'm practicing. I'm trying to <laughs> try um, judgment. And that really comes down to the ability to to weigh things, you know, in, in a knowledgeable and wise sense, but also to realize that opportunities require adaptability. Yes, that day-to-day -day pursuit of the roadmap, knowing that things are never going to be a straight line. And then persuasiveness, you, you talk about persuasiveness. Um, people want to follow. It's not necessarily charisma. It's a talent. It's a talent for engaging people and bringing them along and making them vested and supporting their role and, and enhancing their role in, in any opportunity. 
Yeah, and, and no question, something like charisma helps if, if somebody has is described as having that, but you don't have to have that. To me, it's ultimately, did you persuade people in one form or another to follow your lead? All right, and then the last one's fit. And, and as you say, critically important, you don't need six clones of Leonard, you don't need five clones of Leonard, you need individuals who each contribute to this in a way and they can work, they can work harmoniously together. Okay. They make the recipe complete. All right, so let's let's go to the five objectives. And I mean, these you have been working on since all the way back to San Jose. And, and you should, I think of all of the three, four, five, you've probably moved and adjusted these the most over the years. So yeah, talk, I was, I was, oh, I'm go ahead. Please talk about where they came from and talk about where they came from and then talk about the adjustments. It's pretty cool. Yeah, so this is very uh, specific to DMOs. Uh, and um, I was in the corporate world for about seven years. <clears throat> they were kind enough to pay for, a Fortune 120 company was kind enough to pay for the MBA, so didn't carry the school debt with me. And when I got to the DMO world, one of the first things I noticed, uh, and there are far more uh, uh, you know, um, MBAs in the DMO world now than there were in the mid-90s. I got in 95, and I was a bit of an anomaly at the time. And I just remember asking a lot of questions that would not be unusual for somebody who had been to business school uh, that were, were taken as very unusual questions. Right. And um, one of the things that I questioned was the structure of our business plan. Our business plan was what I considered essentially just a build out of an org chart. You had a, a you know a membership department, a sales department, a marketing department, an operations department, et cetera, services department. They all had their old plans. They didn't necessarily uh, synergize with one another, uh, which is often the case why sales and marketing weren't on the same page when it came to how you you know go from a brand strategy to kind of closing a deal and that sort of thing. And so I ultimately said, you know, what we really have is, is some objectives that we all contribute to in one sense or another. Some departments are more intensified on, on certain objectives than others, uh, but ultimately we need to do five things in order to, again, sustainably succeed, to have success this month, this year, next year, and keep going. Um, the first one's pretty simple because we, DMOs get created for economic benefit. So it's to generate visitor-related economic benefits. And uh, no matter how you slice it or dice it, and, and even in the, the kind of new age of what a DMO does and destination management, destination uh, management is a bigger uh, term now than it used to be. Um, you still generate visitor-related economic impact. You still got to bring visitors in. You still got to you know, put heads in beds. You got to put seats in butts, sell tickets, get people in the restaurants. Um, you're here for the quality of life of your residents, but you're doing that through the swim lane uh, of visitors. Uh, so that's first and foremost. The other four objectives are all designed to support constantly succeeding with objective one. Objective two is satisfying the customer. So if you're not getting, you know, that convention, that leisure traveler, if they're not happy, if they're not returning for a repeat visit or they're not, you know, uh, word of mouth spreading the word about what a great destination India is or whatever your destination is, then you've obviously lost an opportunity. You, you've got to if you're going to succeed in the long run, you've got to keep what you what the customers you've got and build on that, as opposed to constantly turning over new customers. Uh, third, um, you've got to foster positive relationships with your stakeholders. You really see stuff like this happening in the pandemic uh, more than ever, um, where people are running to mayors and governors and councilors and others for the first time because they haven't been building those relationships before they need them. So, what is it that you're doing? Uh, on a daily, weekly, monthly, uh, annual basis, so that, that that's kind of uh, 
almost so subtle that they don't realize you're engaging them, but you're strengthening those relationships with your stakeholders. A fourth is you've got to run an effective business. So you've got you've got to, you know, an organization like Visit Indy is $16 million a year in a typical year, $16, $17 million budget, 60 plus uh, staff members, et cetera. That's a small business. That's a mid-sized business. Um, you've got to have squeaky clean accounting. You've got to, you know, you don't want to have anything on the front page of the paper that uh, that you can't defend. Uh, you've have um, you got to be able to recruit and retain your talent you got to give them the resources uh, to do their jobs uh, you, you've got to be uh, there's a proverbial uh, penny wise and pound foolish and you can't think that way. you got to be thinking about what is it to keep this uh, business with low turnover the best people uh, delivering the best results and then last but not least and at the time i first threw this into a business plan in the 90s people looked at me like i had two heads uh, that is to continually enhance your product and you know, and the kind of first thought was, well, that's what the city does. That's what developers do. Um, you know, the, the Department of Metropolitan Development does. It. That's not the role of the DMO. We sell what they give us. And and you know, I always made the argument that if you're a Procter and Gamble, R and D and marketing are talking to each other every single day. Um, R and D is giving marketing ideas. Marketing is asking R and D developer things. And if you're not continually enhancing your product, but theme park is not developing new rides or new attractions. Then you ultimately are going to lose market share. You're not going to have that that long-term success. So those, you know, number two, three, four, and five, ultimately lead to continually having success with that prime objective of getting generating that visitor-related economic impact. So let's let's talk about that in the context of the last sort of five years of doing business. I, I six probably. I, I met you in Las Vegas at one of the first um, breakouts on Destination Next. Do you, do you remember that? I do. And it was fascinating. I tell this story all the time to people. When you find an industry that stops and listens to an idea, it's it's often remarkable. And I remember sitting in that room and Paul Lumiette was up presenting the first um, sort of iteration of Destination Next findings. And I was new to the industry. I came out of broadcast about, about 10 years ago, uh, worked for the government in Canada, uh, ran an incubator. So I'm sitting in, in probably my second or third DI, and something remarkable happened. The whole room stopped. Everybody stopped talking, and they sat on the edge of their seat while Paul presented the XY graph of you know, destination strength uh, uh, correlated against uh, stakeholder engagement. And I, and I remember just thinking it was the most remarkable moment because when an entire lecture collective of an industry stops to listen to say something's up, and then you were in a breakout room um, about a couple hours later talking about this, and you said something that blew my mind. I, I, I put my hand up and I said, how many stakeholders did you, did you do the survey with? And, and your answer was something north of 600. Yeah, we, we got lucky in the sense that we were doing a tourism master vision at the same time Destination X was happening. So we were able to engage stakeholders on both of those topics. Well, so I'm, I'm in the meantime running a regional tourism office in Ontario. And the thing that's bubbled to the surface is that in any of our efforts, if we can hit a trifecta by, you know, enhancing the digital reputation of the destination, engaging stakeholders, and then increasing the stakeholders' digital competencies, that's that's the key to future success in tourism at that time. This would be like 2011, 2012. And we experimented with stakeholder engagement. And it was the usual DMO goes out, has a meeting, invites their, invites their people in, has some form of engagement, tries to make it meaningful. But it was the number that blew me away. I remember saying, how, what are you going to do with all those people? What are you going to do with all those 600 people, Leonard Hoops? And the answer was, 
we're going to stay engaged. We're going to be engaged with them. And that was a real watershed. And that's, that's actually when I came to the program with, with, um, um, Paul and uh, InterVistas and, Des and Destinations International and said, okay, let's use this tool for the engagement piece. Let's use it for the alignment piece and let's increase the digital competency competencies on top of that. So in a sense, it reads like a perfect example of your five guiding principles. Talk to me about India. Talk to me about your business model and implementing it in India and some of the learnings and challenges because we're listening to this today and we're all thinking, okay, here's a great business model. It's, it's easy to articulate. It's straightforward. How can we use it in our destinations tomorrow? So talk about it in the context of, of India or talk about it in the context of other destinations you've worked at. Well, again, I think if you look at the, the elements of the three, four, five and the, the culture, the leadership and being focused on the right objectives, those are always going to be answers, if you will. If you have a great culture and you have strong leadership and you have and you focus on the right things, again, it comes back to whether or not uh, whether your things are going well or you're in a pandemic. Uh, hopefully you have the right foundation to succeed in either. Succe success in a pandemic is, you know, textual. Uh, because it doesn't look like success in a not 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 in a pandemic, right? It means just getting through with as as little impact to your organization as possible, keeping the jobs, bringing in as much uh, business as you can, in a very sm much smaller uh, uh, you know pie of of available customers and that sort of thing. Uh, what we think right now, for example, that we're looking at uh, because we have been able to keep most of our organization together and. Uh, the funding agencies that fund us, um, despite the fact that they've had very severe revenue uh, shortfalls, have reduced our revenue by only 20%. Um, and they've had far greater uh, losses than 20%. And so uh, the, 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 one of the entities that funds us said, we're not going to cut off our nose and spot our face. Uh, so I know I need to fund you to help us get through this recovery. And um, one of the things we're doing as an industry is we're still product development. So Indy a couple weeks ago announced that the city uh, announced that uh, it and the developer had come to an agreement on phase six of our convention center expansion. So we'll have a attached 800 room Signia Hilton Hotel. And Signia is a brand new brand for Hilton. It's uh, one of the first three that they will build. Um, they're gonna build one in Indy, they're building one in Atlanta and one in Orlando, and that's it right now. Uh, and um, uh, that development deal has been in the works for a long time. I think most people thought with the pandemic, it would be delayed or completely killed and instead uh it got announced that uh they'll break ground sometime uh, before now in the end of 2022 on the expansion and the signia 800 rooms and um right now that is the timeline shows that would be opening in 2025 and if you look at the forecast for cbre uh, str tourism economics those kinds of firms they all see hotel revenue and occupancy recovering by the third or fourth quarter uh, or at least the most recent reports i've seen third or fourth quarter of 23. so by the time that happens, you'll have very few projects in the pipeline. We'll, you know, we'll be well under construction with this one. Uh, and, and, and we will, you know, we're going to bet on Indy and bet on opening into a, the upside of a recovery uh, and not waiting until the recovery to start this development. And I think that's very indie like We built a football stadium, the RCA Dome, in the early 1980s, and we didn't have a football team. And then they lured the Baltimore Colts and became the Indianapolis Colts. Um, we uh, built an airport right after 9-11, which is crazy. Uh, opened in 08, it's been the number one ranked airport for customer service for something like nine consecutive years by Airports Council International and also accolades for travel and leisure on an app. That's a very indie kind of thing. We started construction of the JW Marriott, our thousand and five room hotel, 
and phase five of our convention center expansion in 2008 during the financial crisis. And they opened in 11 after things had been on the upswing. So that's very Indy. Uh, Indy is uh, definitely a, a city uh, that bets itself and uh, it really makes me excited to be here. Uh, knowing that despite the dark days that we've all been through and that are still ahead of us, uh, that we have something to look forward to. Well, I can't, um, I can't underline enough the importance of the fact that you make it sound easy, Leonard, but the amount of work you did to align the stakeholders such that in a funding crisis, when their hits were, were bigger than the hits they passed on to you, that says something tremendous about the way you've achieved what Jack Johnson talks about in community shared values, what we all talk about in terms of stakeholder engagement. Um, and that I'm looking at Indy now and saying, okay, you're, you're a great big regional center with, with a good piece of national business. You see yourselves doing even more regional business in the next 10 years. I think people's attitudes to how far they need to go to access great facilities and, and, and be treated well might change in the next three years. Well, the analogy I always make to folks, uh, and this happened a lot when I, because I came here from San Francisco, SF Travel, uh, and in 2011. And um, uh, for a couple of years, and still occasionally even pops up, somebody will say to me, wow, you left San Francisco for Indy? How, why would you do that? And I remind them, uh, you know, they'll say something like, you don't have any oceans and you don't have any mountains. <laughs> and I say, well, guess who else is a flat city with a river that runs through it, and they seem to be doing just fine. That's Paris. You know, Paris oceans and it doesn't have any mountains. It's hundreds of miles from the Alps or the Pyrenees or the Atlantic or the Mediterranean. Uh, they're a flat little city in the center, the north, north center of, uh, of uh, France, uh, and they have a river. And um, But Paris, the only advantage, frankly, Paris has on us is a 2,000-year head start. So I'll give them that. That's a lot of time to collect some art and perfect the croissants and build yourself a big tower and hold the world there. Um, but the point of, of that whole uh, you know, uh, analogy I make is that Paris is Paris because of its culture and its placemaking. Paris has developed a culture over uh, two millennia and it created a place uh, and it's not had to rely on an abundance of natural resources that separated it as a great city. And many people would argue it is the greatest city brand in the world. Uh, and it's, it's you know a flat city with a river. So uh, I, I tell people all the time not to, uh, you know, to your question about kind of, well, can we do bigger and better things? And be more, you know, national, global, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, without question, uh, uh, it's it's up to us. And I I, I tell folks to, to think. Uh, you know, there's a there's a uh, in TED talks you hear often about cathedral thinking, about these concepts in Europe where cathedrals are built over generations, lifetimes, the 1300s to the 20th century, uh, of families uh, contributing to the same cathedral and it's never finished. And uh, we need to think that way too about our city and uh, and and not let ourselves get limited by those oceans and mountains that we don't have. Well, and in the midst of all that, you're, you're creating with intelligent design, though. You're building things that you, you can perceive a need for. The, the culture of Indianapolis is interesting and different than it was in the 80s when I was a kid, where Indianapolis was all Indy 500. And now that brand is, that brand is one of many voices heard from from from. Indianapolis. It's no longer just a 500, but I got to ask you, being a big race fan, how's the 500 doing? Yeah, it's it's not going to be the fans this year. It runs next uh, Sunday, the 23rd of August, and uh, it's the year that they have held it with no fans. They've had a couple of years in the World Wars and that sort of thing where they didn't run it at all, uh, but they've not had a year where they ran it and had fans. 
and uh, they went through um, a couple of different uh, changes. One was they moved the date in the hopes that they could have it with full crowd. A typical full crowd at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway is upwards of 300,000 people. That is about the population of a city the size of Cincinnati, Ohio. And that's literally the number of people in a typical year that are through the gates at the Indy Motor Speedway. Right. Um, then they changed it to, well, we're going to run it with 50% fans for social distancing, better version of that. Then they went down to 25% of fans. And then finally, late in July, they decided that um, with the state of where things are, that we're still not at a point uh, to even uh, risk the health. And so, uh, but they want to run it. And, uh, um, what, what's interesting is for the folks of Indianapolis, that race is normally blocked out here because obviously um, there are a lot of tickets available and a lot of people go to it. And they, they, uh, show it later in that evening after the race is already done. Uh, right. The only the second time in many decades um, that they have shown it uh, live in Indianapolis uh, when the race is actually happening. So did they did they go through all of the uh, you know the pre-setup days, weekends, and stuff, or did they truncate that as well? That, that was truncated to some extent, but they just had this past weekend uh, uh, the uh, you know determining the order, the actual uh, qualifying. Right. And you're 33 drivers in their order now, and uh, they're ready to roll next next week. But all the pomp and circumstance, uh, the 500 festival, the parade that happens, all the events that happen, uh, none of that's happened, obviously. So it's just 2020 is a strange year, and uh, uh, we'll you know we'll remember it for anybody who's who's yeah who's this year and, and and around in a few years will remember this year forever. All right. Any team favorites or picks for the 500? Well, I'm, I'm rooting for uh, a local guy by the name of Ed Carpenter, who I've been able to get to be friends with, he and his wife, Heather, uh, over the years. Uh, Ed um, has qualified uh, as the uh, – he's had the post position three different times. Um, he's, taken, he's won the pole three different times. He didn't get it this year. I think he's back in maybe row six this year. But I, I, I root for Ed. Um, and then there's just a number of other folks. I mean, there's I've gotten – I've been fortunate. I've gotten to know um, some of the drivers over the years. Sure. Alex Rossi helped us out. Uh, with a customer event um, back in February, literally about a month before the pandemic. Um, and uh, he was really turned out to be a great guy. And he won the 100th running a few years ago. And I believe he did row two or three. So, and he's, he's always a threat to win this thing. I think he's got to get again. And um, there's just a lot of great, great folks who are in that race. Well, it, it's it's an awesome event, and I and I and I loved it for years, and need to come back to it. Um, so, just closing out, let's recap: um, three, four, five, culture, leadership, and then the business objectives that create the the opportunity for sustainable success. You got them. You're a master of this. You're an expert. All right, we're going to write them down, and we're going to circulate them. It'll be a test. Sounds good. All right, Leonard, it's a real pleasure. Thanks for being here. Thank you, David. Uh, enjoyed chatting with you. I hope to see you on the road uh, in person again one of these days soon. We will do that. Cheers, man. Thanks a lot. Thank you.